Hi, everyone. This is Patrick Donahoe. Welcome to a special edition of the Wealth Standard Podcast. My guest today is none other than Harry Dent. And if you have been in uh, the financial space and looked at uh, investment research and uh, different opinions associated with uh, economies and cycles, then you have definitely uh, come across Harry. Harry has some awesome books uh, that are out there, has a very different angle, uh, and some people call him the contrarian of contrarians. I really think you are going to enjoy this uh, this episode. Harry Dent's the founder uh, and the editor of Dent, Re- uh, Dent Research. They have a free newsletter. We're going to put some links into the show notes. Uh, and then he has a new book that, uh, that just came out at the end of 2017 called Zero Hour. And uh, the subtitle is Turn the Greatest Political and Financial Upheaval in Modern History to Your Advantage. So without further delay, here is my interview with Harry Dent. Welcome to the special 2018 seasons of the Wealth Standard Podcast, celebrating life, liberty, and property. You are currently listening to Life Season 1. Uh, Harry, welcome! Uh, welcome to the show. It's awesome, uh, awesome to have you. And it sounds like uh, you are in what everyone would be envious of—a uh, a paradise of sorts in Puerto Rico. Yes, with tax advantages on top of that. Jeez. Well, I, I at least am. It's uh, it's cold and wet and rainy, rainy here. Uh, but anyway, I, I uh, you know, Harry, I've, I've known about you for a long time. It's the first time, obviously, that we've uh, that we've spoken, uh, and. You know, for for me, I, I have a kind of a philosophy associated with just, uh, you know, what people say about whether it's the economy or markets or investments, uh, and it, it's it's always to have really awesome perspectives, and you know, I really this was years ago when you had this huge craze on hyperinflation and, you know. Uh, the world's reserve currency is going away, and then you had this other kind of opinion as far as not, you know, a significant amount of inflation, but deflation, and uh, you know, it's just been interesting to see kind of how the, uh, you know, how the markets have uh, behaved over the last, I would say, you know, since the uh, financial crisis, and uh, and now hitting all-time highs. It seems like every day with uh, you know the advent of the. Uh, I would I would assume Trump administration, but you know I you have a, a contrarian perspective uh, on on things, and which I love because it helps really, you know, refine uh, a perspective and make your you know it, it forces you to ask uh, ask good questions. Uh, so I, I love you know I, I can't wait to have this interview really talking about what you foresee with uh, with 2018, uh, and you know as well as uh, the book that you had come out uh, late last year. But why don't we start with just you know, we're uh, looking at 2018. Like, how are you? What are you, what are you seeing as December uh, 30, 31st, uh, 2018? Well, you know, um, we have a bubble that just never ends. I, I've never, I study demographic trends, economic cycles, and I study bubbles throughout history. And this is the greatest bubble in stocks and everything else, real estate and commodities, which have already been bursting, in all of modern history. And nobody sees it because when bubbles are happening, everybody's getting a free lunch. You know, their stocks are going up faster than ever. Their real estate's going up. You're sitting in your house and you're making money. Who wants to argue with that, you know? But, but you have to argue with that because when these bubbles burst, they are decimating. I mean... You know, we, we saw in 2008 and 9 how much 
real estate went down and stocks even more than that. That was nothing compared to past bubbles and to the extent of this bubble we're in. We're, we're in the next two to three, four years, we're going to see the greatest bubble burst in our lifetimes. It's going to be like 1929 to 32. I hate to say this, but it's just, it's just baked in the cake here. Um, bubble build. They go up exponentially. Every, the more it goes up, the more people think, oh, it can't go down. No, any smart person would say the more something goes up, the more you should worry about the downside. So I'm a cycle guy, and I'm saying, look, this is getting ready to blow in the next weeks or months or whatever, but when it does blow, bubbles burst twice as fast as they build, and they go back to where the bubble started. And, you know, that means, you know, 75, 80% down for stocks, you know, 40, 50, 55% for real estate. Um, and people are not ready for this. And, and people think, oh, yeah, we already had the bubble burst. No, governments stepped in and, and, and shoved $12 trillion into the global economy to offset the last bubble burst. The, the bubble didn't get to burst fully. And when it does, it's going to be dramatic. And I hate, you know, I've been bullish most of my life on the markets and, and the economy because of the dramatic baby boom generation coming through. But they're done. And, and now it's time for us to kind of see this bubble reset and it's going to be very painful when it happens, and people aren't going to see it coming. So I would, I would ask. So, so it sounds like you you're correlating the boom to to more you know stimulus and and, and monetary uh, policy. So, so for the you know maybe for the the average listener and the the, the the neophyte in you know economics and and monetary policy and how you know central banks are able to uh, to influence that like. Where where are you coming up with twelve trillion twelve trillion dollars? Because you said twelve trillion, and then you referred to like the international economy. So can you maybe yes. explain like where that money came from, and uh, and then you know why it went international? Yeah, twelve trillion since early two thousand nine, when the economy was at the bottom of the last great recession uh, and stock crash. Central banks in Europe, the United States, and Japan have printed $12 trillion yep. of okay. money, which you asked where it came from. It came from nowhere. They just printed it and, and injected it into the economy to offset the downturn and the deflation and assets and, and debts and stuff that would have naturally happened, like in the early 1930s after the last great bubble in, in human history. They, they just said, oh, we're not... There shall not be a bubble burst. That's what the you know government said. With and, and they kept printing more. And and you can only do that so long. Um, when when you print money, um, interest rates go down to zero short term. Long term interest rates adjusted for inflation go down to zero. And so people can borrow, and their mortgage loans are less, and their car loans are less, and companies can borrow it three or four percent instead of six, seven percent and buy back their own stocks yep. and, and, and leverage their earnings for sure. It's an artificial economy 
that no longer follows the fundamentals of when people naturally spend money, when natural business cycles grow and decline. This is the worst thing I've ever seen in history. Central banks have taken over the free markets and special interests have taken over democracy. I mean, the Koch brothers can decide who gets nominated uh, on the Republican Party or not, things like that. This this is the worst thing I've ever seen um, in history, and it's, and it's going to end badly because these things cause the markets to get even more exaggerated, um, more out of balance in the economy, and that's not good. The economy needs to grow and then rebalance like any natural cycle. And economists around the world and central banks have said, no, we're not going to rebalance the time. Yes, we, we got over in debt. Yes, we overexpanded. But you know what? We're just not going to let it go down. We're going to print a dollar for every downside of the economy. This is the worst and stupidest thing I've ever seen in all of history, and it will end badly. That's my promise. The question is, how long does it take for reality to hit? So that so a, so a follow up to that, I would say is is because I because because I agree. And what's been going through my mind for the last couple couple of years is how is it kept how is it kept going? So the question I would ask is, you know, we've been in this, you know, really government intervention or central bank intervention to you know assure that these you know corrections. Um, are are you know the, the severity of it? It's mitigated, and it's it's gone on multiple multiple times around the world. So, and then the narrative has been they're just going to continue to do it. So, if they're just going to continue to do it, why wouldn't it just continue on? Like, what's your take on that question? Well, well, again, you can't keep a bubble going forever. Um, I always ask any man I I, I meet, uh, how long can you keep an orgasm going? That, that's my question. Um, <laughs> And, and nobody can forever. And, and bubbles are exactly like orgasm. And, and I'm, I'm, I'm not exaggerating. No, it's emotional. I, I yeah, it's at, purely emotional. I look in my books and I show that, that you look at the greatest stock and real estate and everything bubbles in history. They look just like the Masters and Johnson's orgasm chart that was documented scientifically yeah. starting in the late 50s. Yeah. It is an orgasm. And orgasms go up to get more exponential but then they get so exponential they can't sustain and, and the problem is when they do burst they burst suddenly yeah most stock bubbles that have burst in the last century when they finally do they go down 80 percent or so in the end but 40 percent half of that comes in the first two and a half months yep so so when people say well yeah 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 maybe a bubble but i don't want to get out because i'm okay it's better to get out a little early than a little late because when they do finally blow, it is dramatic. And then we saw that in China in late 2015. Um, their second bubble burst, and it was down 42% in two and a half months. That, that's wow. classic. I mean, so, and, and, and when bubbles burst, everything bursts. I mean, banks go under because real estate crashes and, and stocks and people lose money. I mean, it, 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 it's a negative reinforcement cycle that happens very quickly. 
But while the bubble's happening, I, I hate to say it, Patrick, it's like being high on crack or something. Everybody's yeah. like, well, we're happy. Don't tell us the bubble's going to burst. And I get, I get assaulted in many media interviews for saying this is the bubble's going to burst. People are like, no, Harry, everything's fine. Why are you saying this? Well, I'm like, you're high, you know? I'm talking I, to a crack at it. And what I would say, and, and yeah, I mean, it's, it comes to, you know, mar- markets, you know, the rationality of markets, right? It's the whole, like, you know, uh, markets can stay irrational longer than you can stay solvent. So it's the, yes. it, it, that's what bids it up, you know, that's what bids it up and that's what makes it, makes it crash. And so, so I would ask, because I, I mean, I'm in full agreement with just kind of how, you know, behavior influences, uh, dis- I mean, you have a whole behavioral economics, like just a, a whole science behind how it works. Uh, but it's looking at, you know, why it hasn't happened, right? Because it keeps going up, it keeps going up. And I would say, you know, the, the fear associated with, you know, losing is really, I would say, one of the, one of the primary emotions uh, to why people just sell, right? And they keep selling uh, until, you know, uh, I don't know. And, that, and that's, why, that's what I assume, you know, your, your take is specifically in relation to uh, demographics, because you've talked quite a bit about demographics and how we have this bulge of, you know, old people that are essentially controlling everything. I mean, baby boomers are controlling politics, you know, they're in politics or at the, the higher uh, echelon there, uh, the corporate world, the banking world, um, you know, and it's, it's one of those things where they're all kind of coming to this point where, you know, they're, uh, they're going to ex- they're going to exit, whether it's by decision or whether it's because the market pushes them, pushes them out. So can you maybe uh, talk about how you see this day of reckoning because you know obviously it's one of the a lot of people have said it, it would ha- have happened before right now like before 2018 but yet you know we're we're hitting 25,000 we're hitting you know uh, you know 20,000 dollars on a bitcoin price which is just like you know nobody knows how to explain what it you know one in 100 people and not explain what it is that invest in it you know it's one of, it's one of those like where do you see where do you see, like what are signals you're paying attention to uh, which would, you know, ultimately lead to that first, like, first domino. Well, I, I tell you, Bitcoin may be the sign. I, I study natural cycles. We don't have natural cycles. After the 2008 crash and Great Recession, central banks stepped in and took over the free markets, set interest rates at zero, and and that sets every other asset class. They they and, and they've been printing enough money to control the economy, you know, like, like, like putting somebody on drugs. Okay, yeah, maybe you're depressed or slowing down, but we're going to put you on a drug, on antidepressant, and that's what they're doing. Quantitative easing is an antidepressant for the economy. Well, you can only do that for so long. Um, and, and natural forces will set back in at a point, but only when these central bank policies fail and 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 the reason they fail I, I keep telling patrick is very simple they're going to bubble up the economy again to higher heights which has already happened i mean the stocks are at new highs uh real estate now in most places are at new highs uh the bubbles are greater than ever bubbles burst of their own extremes i mean i mean there there are cities around the world and countries around the world that people are moving out of, including Hawaii in the United States, because they're so expensive, people can't afford to live there yep. anymore because of the real estate bubble, which has been exaggerated by, by low-cost money 
and stuff and foreign investment. I mean, money swishing around the world with this $12 trillion of printed money from all the major central banks. And the money's got to go somewhere. So what does it do? It goes into speculation in real estate and stocks and stuff. So you get bubbles everywhere. Bubbles will always burst. And, and people always say to me, Harry, well, what if this is different? What, what, what if the, we can just go up extremely and then plateau out and have a soft landing? And I'm like, you know what? If you can give me one example in all of history. <laughs> well, it's not rational. Me, you're going to have a hard time because <laughs> I've studied all of history. Yeah. If you can give me one example where a bubble went up like this and then just plateaued out and went sideways, I'd say, I'll kiss your ass in public. Yeah, well, that, that's a ra- that's like a that's rational thinking, right? But it's like that's not how markets work. Markets are right. are irrational mostly. Yeah, the more they go up, the faster they go up, the faster they go down. But bubbles burst twice as fast as they build, at yep. least in stocks. Yep. So, so uh, I keep warning people: there's going to come a day, probably in the first half of this year, I'm thinking in 2018 where the stock market all of a sudden follow, falls 40% in two to three months. And people then and then people will go, oh my God, this was a bubble. How stupid could have we been? <laughs> I keep warning people in advance and people don't get it. No, no, but Harry, it keeps going up, but it keeps going. That's what bubbles do. Bubbles suck everybody up into the Titanic and then it sinks when everybody's on the boat. So how, would, how do you look at like, whether it's uh, you know robo robo traders uh, or high frequency trade, I mean, as you look at you know the the innovation in in trading in markets, do you think that that is is a, something that would um, mitigate a, a a bust of that of that caliber? No, no, it, it builds the bubble. Okay, I mean, nineteen eighty seven was the first mini bubble we had in this baby boom demographic trend, which I've identified forever. And, and you know, when stocks went up, you know, these robo trading models just kind of exaggerated the uptrend. And then when it crashes, It'll exaggerate they that. exaggerate on the other end because they, they react very quickly. I mean, the 1987 bust was, was 40% in, in two months, but basically most of that happened in Two days when the robo models went the other way. Okay. So robo models only increase the bubble, and then when they crash, they only increase the crash. So 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 anybody that says these robo models are going to balance out um, the markets, no, they only exaggerate it um, because they're they're robo. Just what what we're talking about. I mean. They just react one way and exaggerate the trend, and then they react the other way. So this is this just makes. I mean, again, the '87 crash was the most extreme, you know, short-term crash in history for a short period of time, more than 1929 to 32. More, it, it, because this robo trading started to kick in. So this only makes it more extreme, and all this stuff about. Oh, we're going to have derivatives, and derivatives are going to, you know, guarantee everything like insurance. This is insurance with no backing. This only created a greater risk environment, thinking, oh, everything's insured. And then when things fall apart, like 2008-9, these things fall apart because there's nothing behind them. So this is, 
this is very dangerous and, and it's all manipulated in, in Wall Street and government. Governments are standing behind the markets printing more money. Oh, we'll keep printing money. We'll keep making up for this. You can only live off of crack cocaine for so long before you collapse. That, that's my theory. So what do you, so uh, maybe transitioning to, you know, the demographic that I would say, you know, has uh, in a sense the most to lose just because those that are younger, you know, have, have a, they have the cap- capacity and the wherewithal to, to keep working, right? But, you know, the, the group that has the most to lose, I would say they're the ones that have uh, the, the most fragile position in this, in this all, which is the baby boomers. Like, what do you, what do you see as the, the period of transition? Because I would say the, you know, evolution of medicine and consciousness in regards to health that, you know, people are, you know, now I'm talking comparatively speaking, not year to year, but life expectancies, you know, have, have gone up relative to, you know, maybe 50 years ago, 60 years ago. Uh, and you also have those that are staying in the workforce longer than they had, had anticipated. So how do you see, like, what signals do you look for with that generation that would cause you to say, okay, this is, this is something to pay attention to. This is one of my flags. Well, uh, again, the baby boomers, the aging population, people like me, I'm 64 going on 65, mm. have benefited the most from this, this financial bubble because we own all the assets, the real estate, the, the stocks and commodities and even gold and stuff. Um, when it crashes, guess who's going to get hit the hardest? Mm-hmm. The older baby boomers. The millennial generation coming up and still not fully in the workforce yet, they're, they're facing like, oh, my God, it's hard to get a job because the damn old people won't leave because they have to keep working in a slower economy. Um, and, and they don't have the assets and stuff. But when these things drop, I mean, the cost of living is going to go down, and, and health insurance is going to go down, and things like that. It's going to, and, and, and education costs, it's going to benefit the younger generation. The younger generation is going to suffer this next downturn I'm talking about, just like the older generation, but the older generation is going to lose much more, and the younger generation is finally going to get some relief when we have to restructure things like Social Security and Medicare and Medicaid, which <laughs> there's no chance these benefits can ever be paid to the largest generation in history, the baby boom. Baby boomers are going to have to suck it up, stay in the workforce longer, which is not good for uh, millennials in that case, but everything else, they're going to have to delay their benefits, and that's going to help the uh, millennial generation because there's no way they can ever pay this. I mean, economists, the only reason they justify these benefits and entitlements is they say, well, if the economy grows 4% forever and never has a recession, oh, this can kind of work out. (laughs) Good luck. Well, and you also have a pension. You have a pension crisis on on top of it. And so that's where... Oh, my God. I would love your opinion because the thing is, like, these are... I mean, it's not like they can, you know, snap their fingers and, you know, reform Social Security or reform Medicare. It, it, same thing with, like, pensions. I mean, these are just massive, massive, complex systems where, you know, if we're, I would say, the amidst of this frenzy regarding, you know, market declines and sell-offs, I mean, how do you, how do you see that going down? Because it doesn't, it's not pretty at all. I mean, there's no... There's really no scenario in which it's done like in a rational, organized, you know, orchestration. It, it, to me, it's like 
you know, a massive cluster. And it, it, and I don't know, I've just always wondered, like, since you're, you know, since this is your, your expertise, like, how do you foresee that all coming, you know, uh, coming to, to a head? Uh, there, there's only one way it happens, Patrick. The whole system has to break down. Okay. This system okay. is so built into everything in healthcare. There's so many special answers. I mean, just look at this tax reform. Oh, that, oh, oh can we cut this, this deduction or that? Everything got fought. And they're going to yeah, be fought <laughs> and after it's passed. It's it's built into stone. It takes a crisis where everything breaks down and people finally realize, oh, my God. It's like when a, a labor union keeps building up wages and benefits to the point that an industry literally falls and cannot be competitive anymore and jobs start getting lost and the industry starts failing. Then the labor union says, okay, we'll take half the benefits. Only then. You know, and, and that's what has to happen for the whole economy. We cannot sustain the benefits and entitlements that have been promised. Everything from pension funds and companies um, to Social Security and, and health care and Medicare and Medicaid. These things are impossible. A, a four-year-old with a pencil could figure out these are impossible with the demographics of the baby, the huge baby boom retiring with a smaller millennial generation to follow them, the first time in history that a generation has not come up to new heights uh, in, in numbers and, and capacity and stuff. This is impossible, but we still think it's going to happen. It's not going to happen. No. Yeah. And, and it's going to take a crisis for us to say, just like a labor union, okay, at some point in the next three to six years, we're all going to have to agree, oh, my God, we're going to have to retire at 75, not 65. That's the solution. There's many, but that's the biggest solution. We're living 20 years longer than we did when all these entitlement programs started in the 30s, 40s, and 50s. And But, but we're like, oh, no, but we still uh, get to retire at, at 63 to 65. We need to retire at 75 to put the system back near balance. And, and no politician could run on that platform. Everybody wants their, to get their goodies. We were promised this. We were promised something that's unrealistic. <laughs> and it's not going to happen. It cannot happen even at 4% growth, which Trump is promising. We're not going to get that. We're at 2% growth uh, in, in the last several years. And, and only that because of massive stimulus. We have zero growth or less ahead in demographic and workforce trends and spending trends and even negative we're going to have to come to a reckoning and it's going to be painful and people won't no politician will be able to sell this we're going to have to fail and accept it the hard way and finally realize oh we're bankrupt so and how do you know what, i'm one in puerto rico right now go ahead go ahead people saying puerto rico's bankrupt i i did a article in my newsletter a month or so ago we are, Puerto Rico's nowhere near as much debt per capita as the United States. They just don't have a printing press to cover it over. So what, so this, so something I've been thinking, I'd love to hear your, your insight, your insight into this, because, you know, technically speaking, like as far as extending, you know, retirement and yeah, I, I it, I, yeah, there's, the, the, it doesn't make any sense. And the, the, the outcome 
Like, there's only one inevitable outcome, which, yeah, you you have to have a complete a reset. Now, what that looks like, I have no idea. I I, I don't know how to think into those, it, it, into it those details. It looks like the early 1930s is what it looks like, Pat. I mean, I, I hate to say that. A reset only happens once in a lifetime, like the early 30s and... You know, but it can't. But it, but the early '30s, that it was very similar. Like you know, knight on a white horse. You know, FDR comes to rescue with all these pork programs and all these other programs, and so it was kind of like, do you see that happening again from an international like governing body? Because this isn't like a U.S. problem. This is like you know a world problem to to an extent. You know, especially you know first world countries, and it, you know, I, so the the international scope, but. You know what comes to the rescue? Like, is it an international, you know, governing body? Is it you know the U.S. that actually can you know pull off you know retaining some of its power and influence? I mean, what do you what do you see there? And then I have a question about uh, some some demographic stuff too. Well, uh, well, again, um, in the in in the early '30s, we didn't have quantitative easing back yeah. then to stave off so the collapse happened and banks failed and companies failed and unemployment was 25 percent. And then FDR comes in. He walks in right at the bottom. I mean, luckiest son of a bitch in history. I hate to say it. He gets elected at the bottom. He could have fallen asleep, and, and the economy would have turned around at that point because it already went to the worst. But then he did. Yeah, he did public works and stuff. And I tell you, of all the things you can do, printing money, no, that's not a good thing to do when you have a crisis because it, it stops the system from rebalancing but when you do have such a massive downturn and interest rates are the lowest of a lifetime like in the 1930s and like now and i think they're going to go even lower the one thing you can do is build infrastructures for the future but it's something that should be done to be calibrated such that the governments, yeah, they may be taking on some debt to do it now, but this debt's going to be paid off because these are infrastructures and utilities and things. They're going to pay off, and you're borrowing money at like one, two, three percent. Yep. I mean, the difference on on long-term utilities and infrastructures on borrowing at two to three percent versus four, five, six, seven percent historically is huge. Yep. Just like borrowing a 30-year mortgage, the difference between a 4% mortgage and a more typical 6 7 8% mortgage is huge. Yep. So that is that is the one thing you can do to get around it. But but the truth is, Patrick, is that you know, natural forces work. We boom and we bust. We have inflation, we have deflation. This is what I study. These, these opposing forces are what create the dynamics of innovation. We have the greatest innovations when we're in downturns in the economy, like the 30s and the 70s and now, and then they those innovations move into the economy in the next boom when a new generation is spending and adopting these things, and then so and so and so on. It's a natural dynamic. Economists want to create a straight line up thing, never a recession. That is fallacy. Economists don't know their, you know, you know what I'm saying, from, from a hole in the wall. They don't understand the economy. The economy needs this dynamic, and we have to have booms and busts. And economists want to say we never want to have a recession again. That's like a doctor saying, oh, we're going to conquer the, the coal, the human coal. I'm like, coals keep us healthy. <laughs> coals are the way when we get out of balance that we, 
eliminate stuff from our body and keep us healthy and they want to stop that yeah. recessions keep the economy healthy and force efficiency and innovation and economists don't understand this so I, I tell economists you don't understand the very thing you're studying yeah. why should anybody listen to you you're <laughs> idiots well it's just the, the thing is their economists are trade are trained to be rational, right? And it's yes. they're calculated. They have their algorithms. They have equations. They have modeling that says, you know, if this happens, this happens, this happens, and this happens, then this will happen. But the thing is, it's like all of those things that they're trying to predict operate on an irrational basis. And so it's the human behavior, what people are going to do, how they're going to behave, how they're going to respond. Like it's such an anomaly to them, and that anomaly typically is what you know is the X factor, and that you know screws up their entire model. <laughs> Yeah, their their models don't work because their models are idealistic and yep. and they're they're rational, and and the world is rational and irrational. They don't take into account the irrational uh -uh. side, and all of the innovation comes from the irrational side. Without the irrational side, we don't have innovation. So if economists ever did get us on a three percent growth model with one percent inflation and no recessions. We would die because there would never be any, any innovation again. And that's what Japan has now. Yeah. Japan's on that model, and they haven't innovated anything since the early 1990s. Well, what and they're doing – ever uh, again. Yeah, well, I love – all right. So this is, this is the question that I had because that, that was a perfect comment that would segue into it. Uh, because, I mean, I would say you know, the, the, the venture capital fund that's done the most – Right is is SoftBank, right, and it's out of you know it's out of uh, out of Japan, and so they may not be innovating, but they're you know they're using their central bank and their leverage to to invest, and that's so that's where I would this is this is a, this is kind of like the question that I haven't really been able to get my my head around, um, but I look at you know what could essentially accelerate all of this is is the fact that there is so much uh, I would say investment right in in technology and startup. Uh, and you know, there's so many different markets. You know, Salt Lake is one of them, and I'm I'm downtown, and I've I grew up on the East Coast, but since I've been here, there's probably like well over twenty thousand like apartment units that have gone up uh, in the last like five six years, and everybody's coming in for for tech jobs, mostly technology that is being uh, that that doesn't have a profit. Right, that isn't you know isn't some of them aren't even earning any money, <laughs> let alone being profitable. But they're being funded, you know, by really the the massive amount of liquidity that's out there. But what some of it is doing, and more you know more often than not, these these things fold. But there is some technology that is really creating a different work environment. It's creating um, you know new systems, um, new programs, and from a baby boomer perspective, the 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 thing I've been paying attention to is that baby, the baby boomer generation isn't able to necessarily keep up with the way in which business is is operating, which could accelerate their uh, their retirement. But what if you you know from a demographic standpoint, right? I, I there may not be jobs for you know seventy year olds or seventy five year olds because just the the mental capacity that's needed to actually do it, they may not have the fundamentals. So how do you look at, you know, really the the advent of, you know, technology and how it's impacted the workplace, how it's impacted communication? Uh, and do you see, you know, where do you see that variable having an influence on some of your theories? Well, I mean, I, I, again, there's different dimensions. Generations grow up and 
become more productive and spend more money as they age until their mid to late 40s and then they slow down and that that's one cycle but but innovation cycles are a little different uh, the, the generation cycles come about every 39 to 40 years but innovation cycles new clusters of technology I mean imagine what did electricity automobiles uh, combustion engines phones and, and then, uh, you know, radios, which turned into TV. What did that do to our economy? Changed everything. Oh, my. It changed everything. Not just how we work, the assembly line, but where we live, suburbs instead yep. of cities or rural areas. I mean, it, it did. It did change everything and caused a huge productivity surge in addition to the demographic surges. So that's another cycle we study. That's a 45-year cycle. I'm telling you, steamships peaked in 1875, railroads, 1920, automobile saturation in 1965, and now internet saturation in 2010. Every 45 years, almost like a clock. And so in, in technologies, people will argue, well, there's always innovation. I'm like, yeah, of course there is. But it's when certain clusters of innovations move mainstream again like the internet and and broadband and 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 uh all these things you know and personal computers and smartphones when they move mainstream because every great innovation history starts slowly at first moves into niche markets only the richer and urban people had automobiles at first but then after world war ii everybody got them and, and in a short period of time that's when the innovation cycles pay off, and and we're 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 past that. Everybody already has smartphones and internet and stuff. We've already seen the benefits from that, and and things like uh, blockchain technologies are a way to extend that internet industry and make it more efficient and secure for financial transactions and other things. But but that revolution has already peaked in 2010 or so the next revolution in technologies and i'm telling you biotech and nanotech and all these stuff you know are, are going to extend our lifespans you know another 20 30 years on average and 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 that's the only thing that can fight the demographic trends that, that are declining everywhere every country in the world is seeing lower birth rates um and and uh, uh, mo most so in the developed world, but even in the develop uh, the developing world, this is slowing and and will change. Only if we live to be a hundred or one hundred and twenty instead of seventy or eighty, would this demographic decline? And, and the demographic decline comes from as people get more wealthy and move more to urban areas, they have less kids. This is a hundred percent proven in history. And that causes the, the very thing that's caused the demographic boom in the last several decades is reversing now because everybody's having fewer kids. Um, and the only thing that could reverse that is, is instead of dying at 80 on average, what if we died at 100, 100 or 120? Then we would be in the workforce twice as long and that would reverse this demographic decline. So I think that's gonna happen, but it's gonna take a while the next big cycle for us in, in innovation and technologies is 2032 to 2055. You know what? 
I'm um, gonna die early into that cycle. So do you see? So do you? So do you not see those cycles? Those technolo- technology cycles speeding up? Oh, they always. That's all. Te- technologies are exponential throughout all of history. Um, everything is exponential. It took forever to go from single cells to multicellular organisms. It took billions of years. I mean, you know, I mean, everything goes faster and faster, but. The cycles we study um, are the same cycles, whether they be 45 years in innovation or 40 years in demographics or 35 years in geopolitical cycles or whatever. The same cycles happen and are consistent throughout history, but every cycle has more things happen quicker because you're right, innovation, technological innovation is exponential it's not linear and and human beings cannot wrap their brains around that we want to think we just get better 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 linear and then go to heaven forever (laughs) that's the way people think and it's it's not the way that life actually happens and and that that's that's the advantage we have to offer to people i look at reality and i look at cycles and i look both at the rhythmic nature of cycles but also you're right the best point you just made innovation is exponential throughout all of history any generation um that that is older uh, younger is going to grow up and see more change than the generation before them i mean anybody who would have told my grandparents in 1900 that we're going to have automobiles and flying around the world and and internet talking to Eskimos would have said not a chance in hell. No. Well, and that's, and that's where I would say, you know, the, it's interesting because I, I haven't, I haven't done, you know, obviously any study into, you know, the, the, the cycles of innovation and so forth. It's just, it really comes from more, you know, observation and seeing, you know, seeing, seeing trends and adoption rates and so forth. And I, I keep coming to this, I don't know, I keep coming to this, this uh, kind of converging point where, you you essentially have one generation that you know the older generation that doesn't it they don't understand how the um, you know the younger generation is operating. And I'll give you a perfect example. So I got a uh, I got a, a, a Christmas gift from somebody uh, of the Alexa, like the Amazon Alexa Alexa thing, right? And it's free. And man, I had my my nieces and nephews and. Uh, I had like ten kids in my house over the over the holidays, and they when we hooked that up, it's like they were there for hours just asking Alexa questions. It was fascinating. But my dad, yeah. like my dad's uh, going to be seventy four this year, and and he he couldn't like mentally process how it worked. He was like, so how does it connect to the that and it and and he just like couldn't he couldn't. So that's my that's my point is life expectancies. Maybe uh, prolonged, right? But the uh, you know the cognitive ability and wherewithal. Um, do you how have you how have you analyze analyze that? Because what I see, it's like you know I, I, on the Wall Street Journal. I think it was yesterday. Like these huge huge VC companies are vying for positions in the the five G uh, networking, right? So four G LTE, five G. But five G is what all of the kind of technology guys are saying is is what is lacking. To have a very robust uh, IoT, the Internet of Things, where you know cars are communicating with other cars, 
uh, you know, refrigerators communicating, you know, with the microwave. And it's, it's where you have a lot of connectivity, but because of latency and bandwidth issues, 4G and LTE doesn't do that, but 5G will. So it's kind of one of those things where as, as it's speeding up and as, you know, the, the world starts to change there and I look at the baby boomer generation and do you, do you see what I'm seeing? Or is that maybe just a singular case with my, with my dad, but I've, I've seen it in other capacities too, but how do you look at like, you know, the, the, uh, the adoption of new things by older individuals, uh, potentially, you know, not allowing them to, you know, be a part of a growing workforce, uh, because their, you know, services aren't viable. Well, uh, again, older people have more experience and wisdom. Younger people have more innovation. That's another curve we look at. Okay. And, and new technologies, I mean, first of all, uh, just in my lifetime, I remember my first grandmother. And, and like when she was 60, she looked like 80 today. Uh, I mean, people, older people now are younger physically, um, more healthy, more mentally alert, okay. and can still be in the workforce. And they shouldn't be leaving at 65. They should be retiring at 75 or something. And, and imagine if we have biotech innovations um, where people at 100 are like people at 65 or 75 today. And that's when they retire. They, they enter the workforce at 20 to 25, maybe a little later in the future. It's 20 now. But they don't retire until 100. And then they retire between 100 and 110 or 120. I mean, they would be in the workforce more than twice as long. They would be healthier longer, more alert longer. They would innovate longer. I, I even make a joke in my books and say, what happens if you get married in your 20s and have your first family, a couple of kids, and then, you know, they grow up and stuff, and then you hit your midlife crisis, and, and since you're gonna live to be 100, you have a second, and, and there's Viagra, or whatever new biotech drug. <laughs> what if you have a second round of kids and have another two or three kids? Guess what, those next two or three kids are gonna be much better than your first kid, because you learned all your lessons on your first one. So, I mean, this is the type of stuff that can huh. happen in the future that we can't foresee today. But uh, I have a 500-year cycle. I have all types of cycles. And, and my demographic projection for the developed world and even the emerging world down the road is just that it just slows and slows and slows. Less babies, less new people. Um, Yes, we, we live a little longer, but not that much longer. But what if we lived a lot longer? It would change the entire dynamic. And this 500-year cycle suggests that the world's going to be at, the, at, at its top, you know, 120 years from now. And that, that could not happen in my demographic projection. It just wouldn't happen huh. unless we live longer and are healthier and, and smarter longer and innovate longer and spend much longer and all these things and retire much later, this would not be possible. So I'm assuming this is the only possible solution to the demographic crisis we have around the world. If I just projected when we grow up, when we spend the most, when we die now into the future with predictable demographic trends of today, the whole world's gonna go to damn zero in my lifetime 
Wow. But that's going to happen because their innovation always changes the equation. Uh, uh, again, uh, it used to be uh, in the caveman ages, you're lucky to live to 25. And then after that, you know, 40. And then, and then you know, 65 in the 1930s and 40s was the average life expectancy. This, I mean, we could live to be 100, 120. The oldest people on the earth in the best um, circumstances of genes and health or whatever have lived to be 120. Yep. What if everybody lived to be that age? That That is technologically possible. I think it's an, an inevitability because of technology. And, and again, the life expectancy just in the last century has gone up 20 to 25 years. That is huge. What if it went up another 20 to 25 years or more? And I think, uh, again, what did we say earlier? Change technology is exponential. What if it went up 40 years, 80 to 120? I think that's going to happen in the next uh, half century to century. I, I will not benefit enough from that. The millennial generation will benefit from that the most, the, the young people coming on today. And then, I mean, uh, imagine being born today and living to be 100 to 120 instead of 75 to 80. It, it's, that would change the world. Well, and I think it is. I mean, it's it's, and, and I would I would say that yeah, the linear the linear fashion that everybody you know, uh, I, I would say innately assumes uh, is I don't know. It's just one of those misleading things sometimes, and that's why I always try to look at you know just what is what is human nature? What are people driving to do? And I would say it's always to you know increase you know increase time. Okay, uh, which obviously life life expectancy, but it's also you know to increase uh, energy. You know, it's to uh, it's uh, to increase earning potential. It's to so I think the natural drivers of, of human beings, right, is really kind of giving us signals. Uh, and but I, fi- I find it you know I find your research fascinating, and and maybe you know we could we could uh, talk a little bit about your newsletter uh, and kind of what you're doing on a on a day to day, so people can be in be in tune with that uh, because yeah we. If we're not careful, we could probably spend two hours <laughs> talking about all this, talking about all this stuff. Um, but maybe, actually, one thing I wanted to ask you, and then we'll get into kind of what uh, you know, uh, dent research and 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 the services that you uh, that you offer. So the the one thing I I, I want to get your take on is is what's what's the time frame that you are assuming for uh, for blockchain, right? Because I, I look at the you know the craze has been in you know really the greed factor, which is the the huge price increases of these you know uh, cryptocurrencies. But the underlying technology is what most people are in in my experience have been oblivious to. Like they're not able to explain it, they're not able to understand it. It's just like buzzwords that they use. So w- looking at blockchain, though, you know the application to banking, the application um, to uh, to real estate, the application to insurance, and you're starting to see. You know, conferences and companies, and and more you know investment in those areas. Like, we're, we're, what's the time frame? What's the time frame there? Because that, in and of itself, right, will consolidate so many different, um, so many different companies, right, and jobs, and and uh, and I. So I look at that as one of those you know potential technologies to be highly disruptive. Do you see the same thing, or are you do you still think it's in the early stages where uh, you know there's not tons of adoption? Well, well, it, it is in its early stages, 
but it is different from the internet. The internet is what I call a primary new technology surge on this 45-year cycle. And the internet rose from 1988 to 2010. I mean, internet and related technologies and broadband and everything else and, and uh, you know, portable computers and stuff. That, that was that way on the 45-year cycle, up 22 and a half years in the 2010. Now that wave is subsiding. I see blockchain, not Bitcoin, but blockchain technologies as Internet 2.0. Okay. It's a way to improve the Internet that has succeeded wildly in communication from email to Google and stuff. I'm just telling you, my research business has tripled in productivity in the last 10 or 20 years just from these technologies. I, I used to have three full-time research assistants. Now I have a half-time research assistant because wow. I can Google. And then anything I write, I can send to all of our editors. I mean, I, it, it's just unbelievable. Um, but blockchain allows us to do financial transactions. The internet is failing on financial transactions. I have to uh, change my credit card numbers every three months i have to change my damn passwords every two days and stuff the internet is failing on security and the security is important for financial transactions that people are not hacking to find out whether i slept with uh, angelina jolie or something last night they're trying to find out what's my credit card numbers and passwords so they can charge stuff to me yep you know, it's a financial thing. And, and the Internet's failing on that. And, and blockchain, I think, is the answer to that. It's Internet 2.0. It's not a whole new revolution. It's a what I call consolidating the gains and making the Internet even better, but after the peak. So I would see that just like Uber and Airbnb, these are things that make industries already existing more efficient but they don't create a whole new growth trend they just make it more efficient and and replace taxi drivers with uber drivers and and so i see that for blockchain and i see blockchain is going to be a rising technology between now and 2032 until the next major wave of, of nanotechnologies and God knows what else and biotech hits from two on our cycle that would be 2032 to 2055. Okay, that'll be that that if we're going to live to be 100 to 120, that's when that will start to happen. Not now. That, that's what I'm saying. Hey, I'm an aging baby boomer. I'm not going to live to be 100, 120. But millennials today and younger people born today could live to be 100, 120. I might live to be 85 or 90, which is more typical now, or a little longer than typical now. But, but this, this revolution, it has to move mainstream. Any revolution starts with the leading edge people and, or the richer people or whatever, and it takes, many, it takes a couple decades for that to happen and to prove itself. But when it moves mainstream, like, I mean, automobiles, and, and, and the middle class, we didn't have a middle class until after World War II. Yep. And then the middle class exploded with automobiles and suburban livings and electricity and phones and 
radio and then TV. I mean, this whole thing happened. All those technologies were happening in the early 1900s and the roaring 20s, but they only hit the rich and the most urban. It didn't hit the everyday person. When, it, when these technologies do move mainstream, they have massive impacts. Well, Harry, like I said, we could, we could, we could go on for you know, probably another, another hour, but I know you have better things to do and you are in paradise and I'm not, so I'm the one that probably could go on for another hour, but it'd be difficult for you. All right, well, Harry, it was a pleasure. It, re it really was. I'm, and it, you know, I appreciate the work that you do and uh, I ordered your book. It's, okay, great. it's, uh, it's on great the way, crap. but let's definitely get back on the, get back on the horn again and, and continue the conversation. Thank you for joining us as the Wealth Standard Podcast spends all of 2018 celebrating life, liberty, and property. Be sure to leave us a review on iTunes, and we'll see you on the next one.